Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, in regard to foreign interference, how can Justin Trudeau stand in judgment of himself? Warren Kinsella will join us to talk about that. And we analyze this week in municipal politics with John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer. And why isn't Canada taking advantage of its own resource potential with liquefied natural gas? Are we letting this opportunity slip away? All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, grilling continues uh, during question period, of course, uh, about uh, the government's knowledge or lack thereof and the government's action or lack thereof about foreign interference in the elections. We know about the leaked documents over the last little while, and uh, the prime minister at first was basically saying, well, nothing to see here. Uh, he's changed that attitude somewhat in the last little while, but as the opposition continued to grill him, the prime minister says his government's actually taking this very seriously. Here he is. We have mechanisms and tools uh, and ways to prevent counter foreign interference and reassure Canadians that, that everything is being done. And we will continue to do even more, including uh, a foreign agent registry. We know how important it is to do everything to keep Canadians and our institutions safe. Well, I'm not so sure that everybody's buying into that right now, certainly not the opposition MPs, but uh, the, the public at large, I think, is getting a little upset about what's going on, or more specifically, how the government is handling this. Uh, there's a great piece uh, written by our next guest that I think nails exactly where we are on this and, and what we're going to expect and, uh, and what may come of this. Uh, Warren Kinsella is a former special assistant to Jean Chrétien and a war room director for the Dalton McGiddy uh, campaigns three times uh, when McGiddy won, th thanks to uh, the acumen of uh, our next guest. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about a piece that he's written about this. Warren, uh, good to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me, my friend. Listen, I, I should also remind our listeners, besides your, your uh, political brilliance and, and campaigns, you're a lawyer. Uh, so so you, you're yes, also sir. looking at it through this lens about how the prime minister has been dealing with us over the last little while. Uh, tell our listeners about your thoughts on this and how he's he's been behaving. Yeah, yeah. so I confess, yes, I am a lawyer and I've taught, taught innocent youngsters how to be lawyers. So. <laughs> uh, and what I taught my students is um, uh, one of the subjects is conflict of interest. So, uh, you know, there's a conflict of interest code, as you know, federally. Um, but there's a principle in law called natural law. And um, basically, it's the basis for all of our laws, the criminal code, you name it, the common law. And one of the key principles of natural law is that you cannot stand in judgment of yourself. You can't judge yourself. And that, to me, is the biggest problem with what the prime minister announced this week with the gaggle of ministers behind him, you know, nodding their heads, is the ultimate beneficiary of Chinese interference in, in the 2019 and 2021 election uh, was him. He, he was the guy they wanted to win. They wanted to defeat the Conservative Party. They wanted Justin Trudeau to win. So he is now controlling the means by which we investigate this. And that is against, it's obviously a conflict of interest. And I think it's against the natural law. Because this is where I think a lot of people are getting confused right now. And, I, and you, I think, rightly use the comparative to what happened with Donald Trump and the uh, uh, concerns about that and the investigations uh, eventually about Russian interference in, in that particular election. It wasn't his call to do. I mean, there were other people that were that had the ability to do that. And uh, I guess what people are waiting for here is, well, wait a second, who's going to step in? It seems as if the prime minister is swinging the hammer here and nobody else has that ability. That's right. And you know, in the United States, for example, in 2016, you know, there were those similar allegations about Russian interference 
in that presidential campaign. And in that case, we all know Donald Trump didn't want an investigation. He called it a witch hunt. Um, but it ultimately, it was this decision of an official within the Department of Justice in the United States to say, yeah, we need to have an investigation into Russian interference and as to whether anybody cooperated or conspired with the Russians to disrupt the 2016 presidential election. And that resulted in Robert Mueller's investigation. Like Bill, he had 40 FBI agents. He had an army of forensic accountants and professionals, and he had lawyers. He, you know, he spent two years working on this issue and produced a two-volume report and concluded that there had been interference. He concluded that the conspiracy didn't really exist between Donald Trump personally and the Russians. But 40 people were indicted. Like, they took it seriously. And in Canada, we're not taking it seriously. Like, it's just not one election. It's two elections that we now know the Chinese interfered in our process and, and had favored some candidates over the others. In a situation where we've had two minority governments in 2019 and 2021, you know, where the seats, the number of seats that they needed to target was only about 20, you know, 18 to 20 seats. That's what changed the outcome. And I think that's the risk that Trudeau's creating for himself is people are going to go, well, you didn't win fair and square. You won because the Chinese interfered in these 20 seats and you benefited from that. And I think, um, you know, I think he's making a big, big mistake by just shrugging about this and saying, oh, well, you know, I'll get one of my friends to check it out. That's not good enough. Well, and and again, to go back to the U.S. example, because there were people that were dismissive about that charge that the Russians interfered. You know, how could you do that? I mean, how many people vote in the state? The Russians can't do that. But your point's well taken here, Warren. You strategically still can do that. Uh, You know, for instance, in the American example, some key states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, et cetera. And up here, uh, if you can if you can swing a few votes in Ontario and Quebec, you can change the outcome of the election because that's where the majority of the seats are. Yeah, and that that is the thing. Like, if we were talking about Trudeau winning a big majority in 2019 and 2021, it still would be a serious allegation, but he won in a landslide. So he wouldn't be able to make this argument that Chinese interference in a few seats makes a difference. In this case, you can say that. We're just talking about 20 or less seats being targeted, and we know that the Chinese certainly have the capability to do that. You know, I mean, they from you know surveillance of Canadians, private police agencies across the, the country. I mean, even TikTok. The Chinese know a lot more about us than we know about them. They know the, you know, the ways in which they can influence a, a dem- an election process in a democracy like ours. So did they target 20 or more seats in order to affect the outcome? We have to know that. Like, whether you're a liberal or not, you know, You've got to agree that this is what you need to look at. And Abacus, polling agency, and Angus Reid, both this morning, Bill, this is, they just came out in the past few minutes. Both of them found that an overwhelming number of Canadians also want to have a proper public inquiry. And it's not just conservatives. It's, as I think it was 71% of liberals want it and 72% of, of conservatives. So everybody's agreed. We've got to investigate this thing properly. But Trudeau's not doing that. 
And, and I know, as you say, some politicals are getting all their backs up about this and saying, well, no, the, you know, we, we shouldn't need to have to do that. Nobody, I think, is accusing the prime minister, you know, meeting in an underground garage like Deep Throat and, and, and planning this whole thing. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is the stuff that we do know from these leaked documents, Warren, seems to indicate that, as you've mentioned, the, the direction here from the Chinese government was to, to defeat the conservatives and make sure that they didn't uh, take power here in this country. Whether they, they did this with the knowledge of somebody in the Liberal Party, we don't know. But that's what the investigation is all about, isn't it? And, and it's getting even murkier now with the report uh, that we saw on the Star yesterday uh, that suggested that a lot of this money flowed through an MPP here in Ontario. I, I'd like to know who that is, and I'd like to know what, what happened with that money. Yeah, it's like now we're hearing not only is this a problem at the federal level, it was, as you point out, it's happening provincially, but there's really seamy, slimy stuff that is being reported as a fact. For example, the revelation that, you know, Chinese Canadian senior citizens who, you know, really didn't understand the process very well, were bused to a nomination meeting in support of a candidate who was considered sympathetic to China with his name written in pen on their arms so that they would know who to vote for. Like that's stuff out of a, that, that's the kind of stuff that happens in China or Russia. You know, that's the kind of stuff that happens in the third world. That's not supposed to be happening in a modern democracy like ours. And this is the danger I think that Trudeau just doesn't get. You know, and I say this as a guy who used to work for Jean Gretchen. Like, this thing is now casting aspersions over all members of parliament. Until we know who was the beneficiary, you know, until we know who received money, because hundreds of thousands of dollars were transferred to China and ultimately ended up in the hands of political candidates or political handlers. Until we know that, everybody looks bad. Everybody looks complicit in this thing. And we need to deal with this as quickly as possible in the way that the Americans did. Even under Donald Trump, even under Donald Trump, the Americans investigated this issue. That's what we need to do as well. And and to your point about the op-ed piece, you can't pick the judge. I mean, you you know, you he should not be able to appoint this, and not because he's necessarily culpable here, but because he's tied into this one way or another. As you mentioned, he he and his party benefited from apparently some foreign interference here. Uh, you know, we don't know how much they knew or didn't know. We don't know how up the ladder it goes. I mean, uh, we're we're well schooled on all of these things, aren't we? I mean, from the Iran Contra deal way back when, with, uh, and and Oliver North, and 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 of course they went up went on with the Trump situation. Uh, not that we haven't had our share of scandals in this country, too, but this is pretty serious stuff. It's not going to fall away and fall off the news cycle in the next couple of weeks, is it? No, and he is clearly, Trudeau felt that it was going to. You know, and it's true. You know, people, guys like you and me, we talk about scandals all the time. But Joe and Jane Front Porch, they hear it all the time, right? And so, until somebody's led away in handcuffs in an orange pantsuit, they don't pay a lot of attention. This one is different. And these two polls that came out from Abacus and Angus Reid this morning show it. People are now paying attention to this one. And I think that's why Trudeau did the reversal. You know, just last week, just a week ago, as, as you know, he was adamantly refusing to have any kind of proper inquiry into this thing. Well, then he does the about face earlier this week and says, OK, uh, now we're going to have an investigation. But it's like, no, Justin, it's not an investigation if you control the guy or the gal who is writing the report. You've got a stake in the outcome. You've got to show us you know how 
the importance of making it independent. And, and so far, he's not showing that kind of understanding. This committee that he's talking about, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, these are elected officials. That is, isn't it a combination of senators and MPs? Yeah, and so there is a tradition for that. Like, for example, the, the oversight for CSIS is a multi-party committee. Uh, but, you know, they, their deliberations are held in secret for obvious reasons, and their mandate is pretty narrow. This thing, I think it, it requires a police investigation. I don't think the RCMP is equipped to do it. We need to have a, a full investigation because this is a criminal activity took place. When you interfere in an election in Canada, whether it's, you know, sending somebody to the wrong polling station or, you know, giving a candidate hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's a criminal offense. We need to investigate that. And I think we need to have some police officers involved in the way the Americans did in 2017. Uh, you've worked for some pretty smart people uh, in your time. Uh, Crutchin, you know, and, and Dalton McGinney, I've got to know Premier and, and, and the Prime Minister, well, not that well, but I mean, they seem to take advice, which is one of the, I think, key elements for any leader. Um, you know, you've got to have your own abilities, but at the same time, you can't just think that I have all the answers. Uh, I don't know who's conferring with the prime minister right now or where he's getting his advice from, but is he finally just going to capitulate and say, okay, you're right. We'll do the inquiry or is, or is he just going to keep bucking the trend here? I don't know. Uh, I'm terrible at uh, psychology. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, you know, this guy, he never ceases to surprise me or maybe disappoint me. Like the thing with Kretschian is, you know, he, he always believed that sunshine was the best disinfectant. And my view has always been to mix metaphors. You know, truth is like water. It always comes out. That is the thing I don't understand that Trudeau doesn't understand. You know, this thing has been leaking out for weeks. And it's not the media organizations, per se, they're digging it up. It's coming from the intelligence community. Uh, and, and they obviously are unhappy with how Trudeau is ha handling this, whether it's CSIS or, you know, the CIA or some other, uh, you know, intelligence agency in another country, they're the ones doing the leaking. Like, it's like, Justin, it's going to keep going uh, if you don't take this thing seriously and, and if you don't do a proper investigation. Well, the ball's in his court. And, and you, I mean, the thing you just mentioned, I think, is well taken, too. We already know that the five eyes are the uh, partners uh, globally here that share in a lot of the intelligence gathering here uh, are, are looking at ha Canada right now with a rather dim view. In other words, you got to get your act together. This is only going to make the situation worse, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Like, it's just, you know, it's, it's the death of a thousand cuts. If you don't take it seriously, it's going to take a big bite out of your credibility. So, you know, you got to you got to respond quickly. I mean, that's the best way of doing these things. It's not enough to do an apology. You got to do take, you know, concrete steps to show that you know how to deal with the problem. And he's just not doing that in this case. And I think he's placing a lot of, you know, a lot of MPs at risk. Exactly. Warren, always a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Uh, have a good weekend, my friend, and we'll talk again soon. Okay, man. Thanks so much. Take care. Warren Kinsella, of course, who uh, has gone through the political wars and, and won most of them, as a matter of fact. So he knows what of he speaks and knows the inner workings. And uh, he's puzzled, as a lot of Canadians are, I guess, about uh, how the government's handling this. We'll continue to follow this. As, as we mentioned, it's a story that's not going away. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Monday, uh, the Bidet Birth Canada has called on the Ontario NDP party to withdraw the candidacy of Sarah Jama. 
who they describe uh, as a radical activist who has been associated with groups that have frequently targeted Israel. Uh, there's a lot to this story, and uh, our next guest has been covering it extensively. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to give us some insight into this. John, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us, especially uh, I want to thank you, first of all, for the, the, the work you've done on this story. This is uh, as I mentioned just before we uh, did the news update here, it's not often that a, a by-election in the middle of Hamilton makes international news, but that's what's happening here, isn't it? certainly is, Bill. It's, um, uh, I don't know how much internationally. I mean, it is certainly in the media in, in, in Israel uh, as a result of the intervention by uh, the B'nai B'rith. But, um, you know, I, I wrote the article in part because I felt that uh, frankly, the local media have not done a very good job of uh, uh, covering this uh, this debate at all. And, you know, typically when you're covering a, a political campaign, especially a by-election where there's no other distractions, uh, you know, you focus on uh, the candidates a little bit, and, and that involves focusing on their past. And, you, you, you know, a uh, a, th a first-year journalism student could go online and check out Sarah Jama's uh, social media posts and see that she holds some very controversial views uh, ab about Israel. Uh, her, her views on police go beyond defund the police. Uh, she uh, appeared at a Palestinian rally less than two years ago where she talked about abolishing uh, police. And, uh, and and the irony is, um, you know, the party is is absolutely backing her. And she's there are numerous anti-NDP posts on her on her social media feed, largely in fairness, aimed at the federal party. But uh, you know, she's uh, anti-police, uh, anti-federal NDP at least, and uh, certainly anti-Israel. There's no, there's no getting around it. And and I think the news coverage has been really deficient in that area. Uh, it, it's you know, my when we're in a one newspaper town, I think there's a little more responsibility on the, on the part of that outlet to try to uh, dig into people's background. And certainly, uh, I think we all know that if the conservative candidate hold held had a uh, social media profile that looked like this, uh, it would not be ignored by by the spectator. But for some reason, they've simply airbrushed uh, all of this uh, out of her uh, profile. And it, the interesting thing, Bill, is uh, since I published the story on uh, earlier this week, uh, the next day, hundreds of these tweets had been removed. They just disappeared. Uh, so uh, the NDP uh, has not commented. Uh, I asked them to comment. I asked uh, JAMA's uh, uh, people to comment on on uh, all of these allegations and uh, nothing. The the only response was tearing down hundreds of uh, tweets. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, one of the, I mean the police thing is, is not new. I mean she's made headlines because of some of those comments and F of others. But I mean she's the one that's running for office here, uh, saying Hamilton police actually protect Nazism, continue to target Black Muslims and Palestinians. And, and as you go, mentioned, it goes on to say dismantle and abolish the police. Uh, the questions you asked, uh, you asked both of her campaign and got no response at all. Uh, you also sent them to Mart Stiles' office. Uh, they, I guess, acknowledged that they received it, uh, but you haven't heard back from them. But you did mention that uh, she did tell a reporter from the Toronto Sun that she continues to support JAMA's candidacy. So uh, does that also mean that she endorses JAMA's views on these issues? 
Well, I think it's a fair question. And, and frankly, I think it's a fair question to ask the local media. Uh, you know, I mean, if the spectator wants her to win, uh, the honorable thing to do would be to run an editorial and endorse her. But of course, to do that, then you would invite the question of whether you agree with these anti-police, these very extreme anti-police, uh, this uh, these questionable comments about Israel and so on, and, and maybe even why she has railed against the NDP. So, but this, uh, you know, I call it airbrushing, uh, just totally ignoring uh, what are really some significant statements on her part. And, you know, and as for the Merritt Stiles and the, and the Ontario NDP, I couldn't help but think that, you know, this party has had to defend itself against uh, anti-Semitism attacks. And I couldn't help but think that, you know, probably the two most significant leaders the Ontario NDP ever had were Bob Ray and Stephen Lewis, uh, both statesmen, both Jews. And I don't think either gentleman would want to be within a 10-foot pole of this party right now because it, it really does appear to have a problem within its ranks with um, uh, this whole Israel-Palestinian issue. I, I don't want to go over the history of this, but I mean, I think it's important to bring this up because uh, your points about Ray and, and Lewis, I think, are, are well placed here. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, David Lewis before that, of course, on the on the federal scene, uh, Stephen Lewis is dead. Um, right. So I, I don't know where this turn came about, uh, you know, because uh, all of a sudden this is this is an undercurrent, and it's not just at the Hamilton area NDP. It seems to be happening with the Ontario Party right now. Uh, and you're right, nobody seems to want to talk about this, although every now and then these comments rise to the surface once again, and there's uh, a bit of a furor for a day or two. But uh, they don't, uh, kudos to the Bene Brith, by the way, for calling a road on this. But uh, once again, it seems to fall on deaf ears. Yeah, it does. And, and you know, what all this tells me, this lack of response from the NDP, is that they think uh, uh, hanging on to this seat is more important than... Uh, being accused of turning a blind eye to some of these very extreme views that have been expressed. Uh, it's all about hanging on to the seat. And if you think about it, I mean, it's this seat really is is meaningless in terms of the NDP. We're in a majority government situation, which we're going to be for the next uh, almost four years. Uh, one seat more or less from their total wouldn't really make any difference. Uh, and, and here's another thing uh, that, that just shows the ultimate hypocrisy of this. At, at the time uh, the nominations were taking place for this seat, uh, there was a, uh, apparently at least one other person that was kicking the tires about running, a guy named Sam Kaplan. And he was told that, that he could not be greenlit as a candidate because of his social media comportment. Apparently, he had posted something that head office found out about. So if they're checking out his uh, social media, uh, you know, his sites, and, and saying you're not eligible to run because you put something up there that was controversial, uh, surely they they had uh, also looked at Sarah Jama's social media and chose not to do anything about it. But in a situation like that, I go back to my previous comment, you know, if they say nothing, do nothing, does that indicate to me by process of elimination that that they're okay with those views, that, uh, you know, that, that that's, that's fine, you know, no big deal? Uh, and then we would be supportive of somebody like this. And, and your point here, and, and I know Benet Brith is basically asking the NDP to remove her as the candidate. Now, I know the election's only a week away, 
But there is a precedent for this where, where political parties during an election uh, will find out, or usually they don't discover it, somebody else does, discover some uh, rather un unsavory comments sometimes in the past on social media about any number of different things and they ask them to step down uh, apparently i guess that's not going to happen here no and and as i said in the story we're not dredging up something from 10 or 15 years ago that a kid did in in high school we're, we're you know some of this uh, calling the police uh, supporting nazism she made that comment less than uh, two years ago, at which point she was a well-educated young woman. This this isn't some childish prank that, you know, that everybody would like to take back. This is stuff done uh, since she's become a public figure. So, as I mentioned, the the, the, the by-election is next week. Uh, and I, I am surprised, quite frankly, as well, John, uh, that, that nobody seems to be paying much attention. And, and traditionally, they don't do that in by-elections. Uh, you know, the... This, but it doesn't matter as far as you know the the power uh, the power balance that Queens Park does, but there's a, a symbolism I think to to you know the quality of candidates that run in these elections and uh, and that doesn't seem to be resonating with anybody right now. It's very frustrating. Well, I think uh, the uh, Merritt Styles says she's going to be a wonderful uh, representative for the riding. So what we're going to end up with, Bill, if if she's elected, is now we have anti-police. Um, political representatives at all three levels in the lower city. And I don't think that's reflective of what the, the people that are living down there coping with high crime rates. I don't think that's what they're uh, feeling. I don't think that's reflective of, of the voters down there, but it's a by-election bill. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and to that point, by the way, uh, and we're just about out of time, but uh, uh, the city councillor uh, for that particular area, uh, Narendra Nan, uh, is, uh, well, from my understanding anyway, going to be the subject of a, an integrity commissioner uh, investigation uh, because of the way she handled the, uh, the, uh, the safe injection site. And a lot of it's the residents that actually made the complaint, was aren't they? Yeah, it's a, it's a group of residents. I, I forget whether there's 20 or 30 of them signed on to the thing. They're uh, there, it, it all deals with the way the matter got put in front of council uh, last week. It, it looked like a, it was a walk-on. Uh, people in favor of the injection site were all given were all apparently given some kind of a heads up because they were all there uh, delegating. And and about halfway through the delegations, uh, one of the councillors says, "Hey, are we? I don't see it on the on the agenda, but are we voting on this?" And um, the mayor was very uncomfortable. Uh, gave kind of a vague answer and then came back uh, an hour later and she was the one that moved that the injection site be endorsed. So it looked like there was a bit of a lash up that went on, a bit of a, a, a bit of a fix up, so to speak. Well, and, John, we'll uh, be looking for uh, looking for your stories on that in the Bay Observer in the next couple of years. Kind of tight for sure. time today. So uh, we'll pick this up again in a couple of days. Thanks for joining us today. Great, Bill. Thanks. John Best from the, uh, the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about, uh, well, some people are classifying as, as a missed opportunity for Canadian uh, government officials, and especially uh, when it comes to the supply of uh, liquid natural gas. Uh, you may remember uh, we've had at least two world leaders that have actually come in person to Ottawa to sit down with the Prime Minister and talk about uh, getting LNG from, from Canada, and uh, the answer both times was no, uh, which is rather disappointing. Uh, but 
Canada's window of opportunity to supply Europe with uh, liquid natural gas uh, seems to be quickly closing, according to a piece uh, that has appeared recently in uh, LNC News. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Marvin Ryder. Marvin is the professor, of course, at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, always a pleasure. I uh, hope you're not snowed in. I'm glad you could join us today. Well, I'm waiting to teach a class at the bottom of the hour, so, so far, so good. So far, so good. Okay, let's let's talk about this. And I think you and I had a discussion uh, just around the time that the German Chancellor had come to Ottawa and brought up the subject of liquid natural gas. And and uh, essentially, to paraphrase what the Prime Minister said, he says, "No, it's too costly. I don't think anybody really wants to invest in that sort of thing." And and no, you know, we're, we're not going to get there. Uh, they've gone elsewhere and, and cut the deal someplace else. Other places are looking at this too. Are, are are we missing an opportunity here to get in the game on an international level? So if you don't mind, I'm going to break that into two chunks. I'm not okay. quite sure what you quoted the prime minister as saying is accurate. Canada has a problem, and that is that while we are happy to sell you liquefied natural gas, we have to do it from the West Coast because that's where our facilities are. And if you want to sell to Europe, you need a facility in the East Coast, and we don't have a facility there. And we could we build one? Yes, but it would take probably two or three years. And of course, there's environmental red tape and, and uh, impact studies and what have you. And the question is, if we then spend all this time to build something for three years from now, is the demand still going to be there? So what the prime minister had wanted to try to do was see if there's some way to fill Europe's need for liquefied natural gas from our terminals in the West. The problem is that if I'm shipping from the West to get product to Germany, whose ports, by the way, are in the north of Germany, I have to, you know, cross the Pacific, go through the Suez Canal, go through the Mediterranean, loop around and come back. So the more likely solution was for us to sell our liquefied natural gas to a country who was buying liquefied natural gas, let's say, from the Middle East, and then that Middle Eastern supply would be freed up to supply to Europe. So it's a very complicated little thing. Are we missing the opportunity? Yes. But we also don't have an ability to take advantage of that opportunity today. And the question really is, would that opportunity still be here in two or three years if that's how long it takes us to respond? But we are one of the largest, uh, well, uh, the resource anyways, is, is, is a huge asset for us, which is why I guess so many countries, uh, when this energy crisis started, basically because of the Ukraine war, uh, right. they all look to us because, hey, you've got the deposits. Let's let's go here. Uh, is is Can we ramp up here? Uh, is it worth the investment in, for instance, an East Coast facility? Right. So again, let me break that into two chunks. Uh, we certainly do have natural gas in Canada. We have lots of natural gas in Canada. And of course, our ready market has been to sell it to Canadians and sell it to Americans. The, there was a northern gateway pipeline whose job was to bring natural gas across to a, a coastal uh, terminal in the middle of British Columbia where it'd be liquefied and then sold. And at that time, the market seemed to be Asia. So Asian countries, China among them, uh, who don't have enough natural gas of their own, they were interested in buying it. And that terminal just opened this year. It's taken a better part of three or four years to build all the supply for this. Of course, we weren't picturing Europe. Europe hadn't indicated they were interested in Canadian natural gas, not until Russia invaded Ukraine. And the decision was made to try to isolate Russia by not buying any of its petroleum products. So this demand is relatively new. We certainly have natural gas. Now, liquefied natural gas is a relatively new market for us. As you can imagine, it takes energy to convert 
gaseous natural gas to liquefied natural gas. And it's not an inexpensive proposition. And of course, the technology involved is, uh, uh, is you know, it's very high technology involved to try to liquefy natural gas. What I'm trying to say is that, you know, this is something we have to sell, but we hadn't been in the market for very long. And now suddenly we're being dragged in another direction. Would it be worth our while? Well, I'm going to say yes for this reason. Even if tomorrow peace was declared in Ukraine and suddenly the war stopped, I don't think we're going to kiss and make up with Russia, meaning our, our feeling about not buying Russian products is going to continue on probably for a decade or two. And so I think if we could get the private sector, not the Canadian government, but the private sector to say, well, okay, I'm prepared to take a chance. I'm prepared to risk some money building a terminal, then have the government say, I'm going to fast track it or or ease the environmental regulations for you. I think that'd be a great idea. I'm not sure you know, if the government wants to do it, but we can't find a private partner, how successful it would be. So you've got to have a little magic come together to make it all happen. Well, a couple of points on that. And you know, again, you said, well, is it going to be worthwhile in the long run? And I'm sure you've seen the the, the study too, that uh, actually uh, Heather Exner-Perot, who we've had on the show many times, uh, is uh, a director of natural resource energy and environment uh, for the McDonald-Laurie Institute. She figures uh, the desire and the need for your LNG is going to, in Europe is going to probably double, she says, by 2030. So the, the market's certainly going to be there. Uh, but to your second point, uh, and, and again, I'm not. I, I'm trying to connect the dots here, and it may be an apples and oranges comparison. Uh, we haven't fared too well as a Canadian government dealing with private sector partners, have we? Uh, you know, pointing to some of the pipeline projects uh, that, that don't seem to get off the ground for a variety of reasons. And I think, at least I get the sense anyway, Marvin, uh, that some of these private sector companies that may well have the, the money to do something like this may be a little skittish about cutting a deal with the federal government and partnering with them. Right. I don't think you're wrong there, Bill. So again, let's be really clear about this. Uh, suppose I build a liquefied natural gas terminal somewhere, maybe in Nova Scotia. Uh, of course, I have to get the natural gas there. So what does that mean? Hmm, let me think. We need a pipeline to bring natural gas from the West across Canada to that facility. And that means it's got to pass through various provinces. Now, the last time a pipeline like that was discussed, you might remember Quebec said, no, 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 not a, that's, that's wrong. We're not going to agree with it. And that ended uh, some uh, desire to bring, in this case, it was oil, not natural gas, to the East Coast. So we've still got that problem. Even if the federal government is willing, would the provinces play ball with this? And again, provinces typically, when Ottawa wants something, hold them hostage for something that they want. So, you know, even if you had a private sector partner, yes, you're right. They have been burned several times, not by necessarily the federal government, but the provinces holding these projects up. And look, I don't want to minimize this today more than ever before. We're also interested in uh, uh, First Nations rights. Uh, some sure. of the land that you'd have to cross would have First Nations interest. First Nations say, well, they would like to actually invest in these pipelines so they could share in the benefit for them. So again, in Canada, these projects tend to be a little more complicated to do. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it. And again, if the government wants to do it, it's going to have to work very hard to build credibility and clear red tape. But uh, what I guess I'm concerned about, and what I think a lot of people are concerned about here, is is I get the rationale why it would be cost prohibitive for the federal government to go at this alone. I, I, we, I think we all see that. And there would be some stumbling blocks and some some hardships uh, that and to be overcome. But they don't even seem to, to be interested in even pursuing it because of that, as opposed to, uh, you know, the uh, the old, uh, you know, let's try to find a way to make this work, as opposed to, ah, I, I don't think so. And if I recall, 
and again, I'll go back to when the German chancellor was asking about this. There is a plant out in Halifax already, isn't that that could be retrofitted? It, it it doesn't. It's not ready for this kind of work, but it was there, and I think it was decommissioned or something. So it's not as if they're starting with a, a blank slate, are they? Correct. You're, again, you're correct. There is a facility there that would transfer, uh, let's just say, liquefied products into yeah. boats. It wasn't designed for liquefied natural gas, but it could be converted at a cost but you'd also need to supply it with the natural gas to do the conversion. So we're not starting at ground zero, but I'm not sure we're halfway there. It's probably more like a third of the way there or a quarter of the way there. Uh, so uh, you're again, I think you're correct. I think what Canada has said, look, since we're not sure where all this demand is coming from, what we'd rather pursue is an ability for the terminal we have in the West to supply a country who had been buying gas that could get to Germany much easier. So, you know, take just a simple example. Suppose it's India. India had been buying natural gas, let's say, from, from um, uh, uh, Egypt. Uh, look, India, you buy Canadian natural gas, give up your contract, let Egypt supply Germany, and both sides win. And I think that's what the Canadian government had been more willing to try to meet the immediate need of Europe. You're asking great questions though, Bill, about the longer term need in Europe. And so I think we've got both strategies we need to deal with. How do we heat, if you will, Europe this year and next year as the war continues, but then what is the longer term? And we need probably two different strategies. Not sure Ottawa is looking at the longer term strategy. Although they are preaching that gospel. I mean, this is very much in line with what Christia Freeland was talking about a few months ago, wasn't it, Marvin? That that all the G7 nations, uh, and maybe extended to the G20, have to stop their reliance on China and Russia for raw materials and, and, and reserves like this and start generating themselves. Uh, and I think there was an agreement about that uh, with most of the nations. Uh, but yeah. if that's the case, it's, uh, I'm getting the sense the message here, although maybe not stated, but implied, is Canada, you've got a lot of this stuff. You're going to have to step up your game here. Well, right. Again, I think at this point, Canada, because that's, there are multiple ways to replace things, one of the things that Canada seemed to be more interested in was providing the lithium and, and the ingredients to do electrified batteries and things yep. like that. That seemed to be where the world was moving and where we could make the biggest impact. If you will, forgive me for phrasing it like this, natural gas, liquefied natural gas is a bit more of the old economy. And I think Canada was looking to position itself for the newer economy as it goes. But nonetheless, if I can get 20 years value out of something, uh, I'm not prepared to give up on it. In other words, even if our future is electrification of so many different things, we're still going to need oil and natural gas for the foreseeable future. We do more than simply burn it. We, we make products from these things, all those plastics, et cetera. So um, I think you're raising a great question here. We need to play this game on multiple fronts. Sometimes Ottawa seems to be able to focus its energies on one or two things, but they can't focus on eight things at the same time. Well, and and you could say the you know the dynamic has changed, and and you know the Ukraine war I think has probably been the catalyst for this, but I think it's it's caused well nations like Germany and and France for that matter, and certainly others uh, in the G seven to kind of reevaluate where they're going to be doing their business. I mean, I, I guess especially in the case of Germany, they can't totally wean themselves off of what's going on uh, with uh, with Russia and, and when it comes to grain and and LNG and things of this nature. Uh, but they can decrease their dependence, I guess. And But that's that's the long game they have to play here, isn't it? You can't make that decision in a week. Right. Well, of course, I think they would love to move completely rather than just wean themselves uh, a bit or reduce their dependence. I think they'd like to give up completely and go to other sources. It just means rethinking the trade routes. And, and Bill, uh, we had a visit this week by the uh, president of the European Union. I think she was in uh, 
Belleville or or Trenton or something like that, and that's where the Prime Minister met with her. I guarantee you LNG was part of that discussion again. And so I'm sure we're hearing from part partners who would like to see us jump into this uh, marketplace. Uh, just not quite sure. Maybe the Prime Minister is doing it, but behind the scenes and is waiting to get his ducks in his row. That's that's the best thing I could tell you. Maybe there's something going on, and in a few weeks we'll hear all about it. But for the moment, I'm I'm surprised at the silence. Quick question on this. We talked about, you know, with this changing dynamic here, uh, that, that you know, there's an increased need. The United States has turned out to be the big winner here. They accounted for about two-thirds of the growth in imports uh, supplying Europe with uh, 43 billion cubic meters of LNG. I, I'm assuming because of all that that they have East Coast facilities to be able to do that. Uh, not East Coast facilities, but Gulf of Mexico facilities. Ah, okay. So. From the Gulf of Mexico, it's very easy then to, because it never ices up, it never freezes over. Yes, you have to worry about hurricane season, but it's very easy to fill up these tankers in the Gulf of Mexico, have them jut around Florida and then immediately steam their way to Europe and fill the need. So yes, the United States had facilities and they were better able to meet the needs than what we saw uh, Canada do. Uh, and that's, again, because our focus had all been on Asia. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this, Marvin. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Take care. You too. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.